Well, good morning, everybody. Please be seated and uh, relax. And uh, a delight to be here. And may I say that um, from when we met Phil and Julie last year, Hayes and I both felt uh, these were just great people. And um, so we were pleased that they were actually friendly with us. <laughs> and uh, very glad to be ongoing friends and a pleasure to be here today. Now we're from Queensland, sunny Queensland. Uh, Brisbane gets 300 <clears throat> days of sunshine a year, but we live in the north in the tropics. We get even more than that. But in Queensland, we do things properly. We speak properly, we dress properly. Uh, this, this is how Queenslanders dress. And if, if you come to visit us, make sure you dress properly. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, but I knew you were very, this is a wonderful church, very important, so I thought, well, we better dress up, you know. Actually, I've just come back from Kenya. Everybody there wears suits and ties, and I'm kind of still in that mode, you know. <laughs> now, at home, it's so hot, we never, we never wear ties. We never wear coats either, for that matter. But, but as I say, you are special. So, um, <clears throat> dear friends, uh, let me uh, pray, because I have learned that there is a grace called the spirit of understanding. It's one of the seven anointings, primary anointings, that rested on the Christ. The prophet Isaiah speaks of it. And in fact, history-wise, the church is being moved by the Lord to a state of maturity where the sevenfold anointings of Christ are going to be fully present in the, in the church, in the world as a whole. At the moment, it's not like that. We have little bits of it. But the key to it all is the spirit of understanding, one of those. I'm not going to explain any more about that at the moment, but I'm going to pray and release that anointing over your minds and hearts, and you'll find the result always is you tend to get what we're talking about a whole lot more. We trust in the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. So let's just take a minute. Father, I thank you. The Lord is present. I thank you the Holy Spirit rests on us today. We're in Christ. And we thank you for this anointing, the spirit of understanding. And I receive that from your hand today. And I bring that anointing down upon this meeting and upon this church and upon these believers. And in the name of the Lord Jesus, I release it over their minds and their hearts. In Jesus' name, I give it to you. Lord, let that rest on them now. Open eyes to see. Holy Spirit, be the spirit of truth in the hearing of everyone today. Holy Father, open your word for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a little bit about ourselves. Uh, we seem to have done everything early in life, which means... Uh, We've been doing things a long time now. I've been converted uh, over 50 years and been in the ministry most of those years. We've been married most of those years, 47, going on 48 years. Um, all our early years were in the Salvation Army. I played in brass bands for 25 years. Hazel comes from five generations of Salvation Army officers, more or less, and I from five generations of Salvation Army bandmasters and the like. But both of our great-great-great-grandfathers, uh, whatever, what that, however many greats that works out to be, back five, um, Hazel's great-great-grandfather was a terrible alcoholic, terrible drunkard in the streets of Rockhampton. He was a bullock drover in the early days, 
and he got converted, uh, kneeling at the Salvation Army drum in the open air meeting. And uh, in fact, the Bullocks, the Bullocks didn't know when to go and stop after that because when he got converted, all the swearing got cleaned out of him. They didn't know what he was talking about anymore. <laughs> and, uh, but then there was generations of godly people. But my ancestor, five generations back in Spennymore, England, was also a terrible drunkard and got converted in the Salvation Army. So anyway, pretty amazing. But the Lord pulled us out of that when uh, 31, 32 years ago, a Baptist church in Rockhampton asked us if we would lead them into renewal. Like I was already, I've been in Pentecost. The old, the old, the old timers used to say, oh, I've been in Pentecost 30 years. Remember the old guys used to talk like that? Well, I've now been in it longer than them. <laughs> 1974, got so profoundly baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's when I first went into Salvation Army College, but I was so hungry for God. And the same year, I was sitting reading my Bible one morning when the Lord came, stood right in front of my left knee and he said, I make a covenant with you according to the sure mercies of David. And he had other things to say. He said, you'll call nations, you know not. I didn't know what any of that meant except the Lord had stood there and made a covenant with me. And I didn't know, did he, did, did he do this with everybody? You know, or was I the only one? Or I, I, I had no clue about that. But two years later, he came back, stood there, said the same again. And three years later, it happened again. So it was obviously pretty serious. I didn't know what any of it meant, all the things he said. I never prayed about it either. But uh, I just knew he'd said it. But it was very, very clear that he'd made a covenant with me. And that had a whole lot of outworkings in terms of he, he took me in hand, began to teach me many things. But the first thing he began to teach me was how to pray so you always get your prayers answered. That's pretty handy. That's not my subject for today. You have to come back tomorrow. But... <laughs> But um, anyway, uh, back to our own personal story. We were married young, we were 19, and um, we wanted children. In fact, when we were 17, we discussed it. You know, we, would, we wanted four children, she wanted four, I wanted four, and we wanted to raise them for the glory of God. And, um, but we'd been married some years, no children. And, and we went all through Bible college, we were in our first church, still no children. More than five years went past. So Hazel says to me one day, I'm, I don't want to grow old and every month looking for something to happen and it doesn't happen, just get disappointed and bitter. She said, I'm going to go and seek the Lord. And if he says we're not going to have children, I will be happy. I'll dedicate my life to serve Christ, but I have to know. So she went and sought the Lord. The Lord gave her a word which said, the word of the Lord will not depart from your mouth or from the mouth of your children or your children's children. She came back to me and she said, it's okay, we're going to have kids. And she fell pregnant in two weeks. So um, I asked the Lord to name the baby. I wanted to give the Lord the honor of naming the baby. He gave me a Bible reference to look up. I looked it up and said he was born after the line of David. So I thought, well, that's his name then. Uh, then we prayed and the Lord gave us another one, Philip. Those two boys are now my, my senior leaders in the ministry where I am. Uh, well, I have a team and I've got actually four or five really right-hand guys, all of them senior to me, but um, those two boys, so... Uh, so effective in the ministry. Uh, anyway, enough of that. Uh, we prayed again, and the Lord gave us our daughter Elizabeth. We prayed again. He gave us our daughter Stephen. Stephen's the chief pilot of our aviation operation. We run it. I own a flying school and a charter business, and Stephen takes care of all of that. I don't fly commercially. He does. But um, then, uh, anyway, we, our family was complete. Four. It was wonderful. You know, years went past. They were growing up getting older. We were getting older. And all of a sudden, one day, I was actually seeking the Lord. I wanted a revelation of the glory of God in the church. 
two days of prayer I put into this, waiting on the Lord, and late on the second day, I suddenly, my eyes are open to see in the spirit realm, and I saw the amazing presence of Christ, the amazing glory and power of Christ that was present in a woman giving birth and raising this child for Christ. And the glory of God on it was astounding. And I didn't think that it was the answer to my two days of prayer. I just thought it was something extra. You know, I went home and told Hazel about it, but she thought I was suggesting something, and she was none too pleased. Now, we were nearly 39, and, um, but it turned out the Lord was suggesting something. And he kept speaking and speaking, and uh, in the end, and, and Hazel didn't like this, you know, she didn't like being pregnant, she didn't like giving birth, she didn't mind raising kids. But in the end, um, she had this encounter with the Lord where he so changed her heart, and it completely shifted to where she just delighted to do his will. And he gave her a scripture, present your body a living sacrifice. So we handed it all back over to him, waited a little while, nothing happened immediately, but after some time she fell pregnant. And we had another one. Uh, a son was born. Well, well, then she fell pregnant again, another one was born, two sons. And then she fell pregnant again, another one was born, three sons. And then she fell pregnant again, and a daughter was born. And I realized afterwards what it was. You know, she'd prayed for four, I'd prayed for four, you know. <laughs> You've got to be careful with your prayers. But the funny thing was, when we yielded to the Lord, because it was just a private thing, when she fell pregnant, um, a bunch of other people in the church also fell pregnant, including the wives of all the other pastors. And all of them were mature age, had finished their families, one of them had, had an operation, so it wasn't possible, the fellow, you know. And I said to him, well, you shut the gate, but the horse bolted anyway. <laughs> it was like this anointing got released, you know. And uh, so consequently, all over the world, people with childless asked me for a prayer, and most of them within a year got a baby. It's pretty astounding. Anyway, no, enough of all that. There's some of their personal stuff. But meanwhile, back at... Uh, the church, um, this Baptist church asked me if I would lead them into renewal. But the funny thing is, this is what I want to tell you about. During the course of your life, there'll be tests. These are tests of the heart. Now, don't think for a minute that, that Christian life does not involve trials and tests. And it's very important. If you understand the way of grace, it's really, really important that the Lord put you through some difficult things because it's the key to better things. The doorway to better things is always a trial or a test. In fact, I say to people, if people have been praying for something and it's like the heavens are brass and they can't quite break through, I say to them, no, this is good. It means that what you're asking for is not big enough. What the Lord has in mind is something even better and he's wanting you to press in all the more. Now, from my early days as a Salvation Army officer, I had this sense that the Lord had something important for me to do, like something really critical. It wasn't really the ministry then, and I kept praying and praying. Nine years of prayer, I was seeking the Lord, you know, put me into the ministry you want me to have. And when we left Papua New Guinea, because we'd been missionaries for five years, the Lord said to me, two years from now, you'll be in a new ministry. And a whole year went past, and, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is the year I'm meant to 
you know, discover the will of God and do it in some new way. But I knew as a clutch, you know, I thought I'd never be able to do this. I went and sought the Lord. I said, Lord, I'm concerned. If you're, if you're relying on me to work out what your will is and do it, I'm going to mess this up completely. I said, I need you just to lay it on me. But I promise you, if you do, I won't pull back even if I don't like it. All these are fateful words. And within two weeks of me saying that, the worst trouble of my life fell on me. This is 1987. I call it the year of my trouble. Uh, we, went, we were put, I was put by, by the Lord through the most difficult of experiences, but it turned out this was the key to the plan he had for me. Now, the most terrible things began to happen to me, and it was through other people in the ministry. And uh, you, you talk about being lied about, betrayed, rejected, you know, vilified, your name made, made mud. In fact, the world got so dark, I didn't think anyone would ever trust me again. And uh, I, I just didn't, didn't know where life was going to go. But I only knew one thing to do. I knew that you always forgive. So when all this trouble broke on me, I went home and uh, put Christian music on in the house and I knelt in the lounge room and I, I just yielded it all to the Lord. But the key thing was I forgave. I forgave them for what they did and what they were saying. But the next day it was worse. I came home and forgave them all again. And the next day it was worse. I came home, forgave them all again. And Hazel said to me, how can you forgive them so easily? I said, this is the way of Christ. Now, this went on four and a half months, and, and she was so worried for me that she began to fast. So she would fast every week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, three days a week, and uh, then eat four days, and then fast three days. She fasted four and a half months like that, praying for me, while every day I'm forgiving and so on and so forth. But it was the key by which... The Lord brought us into experiences of Christ. I still remember the night when we were kneeling in prayer. Um, this particular day, I'd experienced anger that I couldn't seem to get rid of over something that happened that was even much worse four and a half months in. And so that night we met with, for prayer with two other people and found all four of us felt the same, still feeling some anger we couldn't get rid of. And so we, we decided to pray after dinner and I was kneeling on the floor and seeking to really unload all this to the Lord. And he, and he granted me a grace. And you, you can, it's the grace of repentance. You can never properly repent to the point where you really get released and through to God without the Lord gives you a grace for repentance. You know, these people who think that, oh, they can sin now and repent later, you'd be a fool. Today's the day of salvation. And he gave me this great grace for repentance and deeply before the Lord, you know, I could confess my sins. And uh, all of a sudden, in the middle of this repentance, Christ stood right in front of me. And I fell at his feet and wept and wept. But it was so cleansing. The others saw Christ too. In fact, we argued afterwards because we all thought Jesus was facing us, you know. But... Um, it, it somehow lifted me above all that stuff that was happening and put me in another place and then we began to see the power of God really flow, a real anointing in ministry, real power in prayer. All I'm saying, that, that's just a little bit of what happened that year. All I'm saying is your, your trials or your troubles, if, 
if you will deal with them in a Christ-like manner, are actually your key to greater things. Don't quit. But always remember the principle of forgiveness. doesn't matter what happens. In fact, no one ever gets into any real level of apostolic grace if you're carrying you know, bitterness, regret, unforgiveness. No, genuine apostles are free of all of that. In fact, genuine apostles have had the worst things dumped on them, the worst betrayals, and yet they come through that with a pure heart, full of love. That's the whole point. Otherwise, it wouldn't be an apostle. Anyway, this is just kind of background, you know. I've got to get to my subject, really, if there is one. But <laughs> uh, This was kind of some of the preparation for me, but I wanted to make this point about trials and the tests of the heart. The Bible's really clear, he tests our heart. The purpose of a test of the heart is not for you to fail, and it's not to make life difficult. The whole purpose of a test is because he wants to promote you. And if he can get you through that test, he will lift you up to another place altogether. The interesting thing is sometimes when you thought you failed, he actually thought you passed. You you keep trusting, right? Keep praying. Diligently seek the Lord. So I was, um, as a result of this year of trouble, I passed these tests and came into another level of grace altogether. This Baptist church in Rockhampton came and said, would you lead us into renewal? Not every day you get an invitation like that. But, the, but it, their, their fit with me was great and the Lord took a hold of us and propelled us in a very short period of time through the whole you know, range of charismatic Pentecostal experience but in, and through the prophetic deal, all in a few years, but where he wanted us to go ultimately was apostolic revelation. And that's what we travel the world teaching. And um, ultimately I'm going to tell you about another test of the heart. And the, um, in those early years, 90, uh, sorry, 89 through 1995, I, I was being shown by the Lord all this information about apostles, the nature of apostles, what an apostle is like, what would they do, the, the way he wanted to restore them. And I thought it was all about the restoration of apostles to the church until in 1995, suddenly the ground shifted under my feet completely. And I realized that what the Lord was doing was something much, much bigger than restoring apostles. He was actually about the business of the total reformation of the whole church in the whole world, that the whole church was meant to become an apostolic people. This doesn't make everyone apostles, but he wanted to bring the church into another level of grace where there was a far better value system in the heart. And basically it was a shift from Christianity as we knew it being so institutionalized in denominationalism to being a very relational people where we walk together as a people with our hearts knit to one another and to our leaders. So from institutionalism to real relationships, but it can't be done without apostles. This is the point. The the real relational nature of the church, the real fullness of the expression of love that we are meant to have for each other can't be realized without a genuine apostolic leadership. In other words, we need more than pastors and teachers. We need more than prophets and evangelists. You must have real apostles. But the trouble is, because we've all had this denominational background, we have a completely wrong view of what an apostle will be like. 
And we tend to think of, you know, the big dog on the porch, you know, managing director of the company, you know, commander of the military. And, and all these things have a little application, but it's not the main deal. A genuine apostle has a totally different heart. And a real apostle is not interested in owning the property, controlling the finance, not interested in anything except what's in the heart of the people and where he can help pastors and teachers and other leaders take the church. It's all about the spiritual state of the church. And a genuine apostle is not someone who's successful in ministry, more successful than other people. Now, a, a lot of people are meant to be successful in, in ministry and even build big churches, even build big networks, but it doesn't make them apostles. In fact, generally, apostles don't do that. Ultimately, the real apostles are a different kind of leader, and they, look, I'll tell you what it is. The genuine apostle is a person who, after long, long years of trials and tests and being pretty beaten up, uh, is ready to be trusted by Christ. And the genuine apostle is someone that Christ then personally trusts and gives him his personal authority to represent him personally. That's a totally different deal. And they're the apostles that in the end we want. And mostly we've not seen that yet. But it's coming. However, that kind of apostle carries a grace to transform the church. And one of the big tasks for real apostles is teaching the fivefold ministry how to love each other. So one of the really big tasks is bringing all the pastors of a city or a region to the place where they are one in heart and mind. So that's quite different to denominationalism. But that's where this is going. This is our future. And uh, because, you know, all those scriptures about love one another, honor one another above yourselves, love each other deeply from the heart, all those things, accept one another as Christ has accepted you, the place where that is meant to be most effectively worked out is in the relationships between the pastors. Whereas pastors to this point teach it to their congregations thinking, you know, you should love each other, but all the while ignoring the fact that it's speaking to them personally about loving the other pastors in the town. Because it's actually the pastors of a given region, not just pastors, but the prophets, the teachers, whoever the fivefold ministry is of a region, that in Christ, is a, is a fabric woven together in one garment. These are not, it's actually, in Christ's view of things, these are not separate independent ministries at all. Because Christ has one church. There's only one golden candlestick for any given region or city. And there's a thing that, that the Holy Spirit refers to as the fabric of the fivefold. It's like a garment, you know, like a shirt like this is made up of many threads, you know. Some run this way, some run wet the, that way. When properly woven together, you've got a garment that covers a body. That's what the fivefold ministry is meant to be for the body of Christ. This is why the, the, the great agenda if you, of the Holy Spirit, if you like, the real battle in the, spirit, in the heavenlies right now is over two things, but it takes time. This is not a five-minute battle. It's over, one, the restoration of genuine apostolic authority to the church. We, we haven't had that yet, by the way. Even though there's a lot of talk about the restoration of apostles, yes, what we've seen is the restoration of the, the notion of apostles, you know, the ideas of apostles. You know, in other words, we can have apostles, that kind of thing. What has not actually been restored yet is the real authority of apostles. 
because the church has to be prepared and apostles have to be prepared because it's a thing of another order. It's not, it's not something we, it's not the way we think yet. We're getting there. But the other battle in the heavenlies is over our cities. The real unity of the body of Christ, the real unity of leadership. There's been so much vested interest, so many people pulling in so many different directions. That's what's being dealt with. I've written numbers of books, um, four major books really on this subject. The first of my book was, was the, the Apostolic Revelation, I wrote in 2002 after 13 years of listening to the Lord on this, and not just listening. I taught this all around the world to many pastors of many different kinds. Some of the, you know, a lot of Pentecostal ones, a whole lot of very conservative ones. Even, for example, in Belfast, I was teaching Presbyterian, Baptist, Congregational, even the odd uh, secret Catholic priest and a few nuns that snuck in and muffed into the meetings. And, and, and I, I never ever had any, of, any people anywhere in the world disagree with what I was saying and walk out. And um, in Belfast, I'm, you know, in Church of Ireland people were there and I'm thinking, oh, if anywhere in the world uh, this won't fly, it'll be here. But no, it flew, you know. And it was the Presbyterian guys who wanted laying on of hands and ministry, you know. So... Uh, you, the fact is the message has a grace when people hear it properly and, and know what it is the Holy Spirit is saying. So I ended up writing this book, The Apostolic Revelation, because I knew once the, 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 the major anointing for this was released onto the body of Christ, like the great anointing for apostles and prophets, which hadn't been released at that stage. Once it was released, I knew, I knew people would grab that and run amok and, and some safety rails had to be laid down for the, that thing and that's that's what that book was all about and I think there's one copy up the back there left but I went on to write other books and um, I, I have two of the books here today the the second book I wrote was this one called the spirit of sonship and this is the outworking of the spirit of understanding that anointing I told you about in the hearts of believers but the way it bears fruit is in the way your heart becomes connected to your leaders. Without that, the body of Christ can't be built. And that's a major work going on in the world right now, the establishing of father-son relationships in our hearts. Now, the most critical place to establish that is in the hearts of the fivefold ministers. That is every pastor, every teacher, every prophet, every apostle really should in his heart or her heart be a son to a father. And that's what I want to comment on for a few minutes uh, when I get kind of through this introductory bit. I'll come back to that. But it's, it, it was the spirit of understanding as a grace resting on the Christ that enabled him with a human brain and a human body to so know the Father and to so walk with the Father as one. And when that grace is given to you properly, and by the way, that anointing is meant to be given to you fully in the baptism of the Spirit, but if it's not taught, you don't get it. This is the funny thing about the baptism of the Spirit. You will tend to receive in the main the things that you were taught were in it. That's what you have faith for. So if as Pentecostals you have faith for a baptism of the Spirit that says, oh, I can speak in tongues, prophesy, you know, heal the sick, cast out demons, yeah, your power will be endued upon you and, and that's the stuff you'll start to do because you believe that's what you could do. But prior to the Pentecostal movement, out of the second great spiritual awakening, there were great movements that believed in a baptism of the Spirit. One of the most outstanding of those was the Salvation Army. And the Salvation Army had a very, very strong doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
but it wasn't in what you think of as Pentecostal terms. William Booth used to call it the mighty Pentecostal baptism of the Holy Spirit. This was from 1863 on. But their belief was that you would wait You'd, you'd wait on the Lord for power endued from on high. You'd pray all every Friday night, all Friday night. You could get it every week. It wasn't a one-off, you know. And the Holy Spirit would fall. They had huge scenes, fire falling from heaven. But what they believed was the baptism of the Spirit gave you the power to live a holy life and the power to win souls. And they were the two things that the Salvation Army was the absolute standout example of in the world and William Booth went from being one evangelist to being 10,000 evangelists in just 25 years, spread across 80 nations, and they brought millions and millions to Christ. It's history long forgotten. But all that came out of their understanding of the baptism of the Spirit. Their lives were so sold out, you, you'll never read more exemplary e examples of Christian living than all those early Sallies, and there were thousands of them. And... Um, but, but ultimately, Azusa Street comes along, rediscovers the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the gifts of the Spirit, tongues. And, and so we've had 100 years of that. But right now, the Holy Spirit is revealing there is more in the day of Pentecost. There is more in the giving of the Spirit. It's meant to be all of those things plus a whole lot more. But the core of it, the heart of the whole deal on the day of Pentecost was the giving of this, of the spirit of understanding, even though the text doesn't call it that. And it took me a while to realize that's what it was because when the Lord spoke to me about it, as he did in the year 2002, he simply said, there is an anointing by which community is built. He was using my vocabulary, this, the vocabulary I was using in prayer as I was seeking him to so take hold of my church and make our people one. So he was using my vocabulary and he said, there's an anointing. I, never, I had never not realized there was an anointing for this kind of thing. And because we'd been trying to build community, get, teach people to love each other, teach people oneness, faithfulness, you know, brotherly kindness. It was a lot of good teaching, seven of years of it, but we never got any, it never changed anything. Well, for outwardly. Until the Lord said to me one day, there's an anointing by which, you know, this is done. Well, I realized then we don't have the anointing. But I knew what to do with missing anointings. I, I knew how to gather the church, teach them about it, take a hold of an anointing from the throne of God, bring the thing down and release it. I'd already understood how to do that. And I did that one Sunday morning and it changed everything in our church. Because, and yet we had all been, we were all baptized in the Holy Spirit people. We were all tongues-talking, prophesying people. That whole Baptist church came into Pentecost within one year of me being the leader there. Now, yet... Even though we had the most astounding miracles, we, we had the most astounding healings that I've heard of anywhere, and we're getting them every Sunday. The worship was wonderful. Missions. I mean, it was wonderful church life, but I just knew there was something missing, and this was the thing. But when that got released, it totally changed the heart of our people. It's a grace. In the same way that when you were born again, your heart changed, didn't it? When you got born again, your heart changed. You didn't change your heart. In fact, you ended up with the kind of heart you couldn't have had if you had tried. No, there's some miraculous power at work that suddenly gave you a different attitude, you know, different desires, different loves. And the same thing happens with the baptism of the Spirit. Power of God comes on you and changes you. I remember both those experiences for me were such profound changes of life. How come? 
Well, in answer to your cry, actually the Holy Spirit puts the cry in you and you cry to God and then he gives you what you're crying for. The, the power of God rearranges things on the inside. Well, it turns out there are rearrangements on the inside of us that God plans, which is another level of grace altogether, but it's a corporate experience of love. So being born again is an individual experience. You get saved. And for most of us, baptism of the Spirit was an individual experience. But actually, biblically understood, the baptism of the Spirit is meant to be a corporate experience. That's where something was missing. On the original day of Pentecost, that fire that came from heaven ended up sitting on the heads of 120 people and they were all filled in the Holy, with the Holy Spirit at the same time. And you go on to read that it says all of the people were of one heart and one mind. Well, where do you think that came from? It came from Pentecost. It was the result of them getting a really full dose of what was at the core of Pentecost, which was the spirit of understanding. It changed everything. Listen, go back to the Gospels. Jesus has got these 12 apostles. He's already called them apostles. He's given them authority. These guys can raise the dead. They heal the sick. They cast out demons. You know, they preach the kingdom of God. They've been doing it for three years. But, but whenever they think Jesus is not listening, what are they doing? Come on, you must have read your Bible. They're arguing with each other. And particularly about which one of them is the best. You know? And then James and John put their mother up to ask Jesus to give them the best seats in the kingdom. You know, what is this? This is the striving and the competition that goes on in human hearts, not before they're born again, after they're born again. These guys were not only followers of Jesus. He'd given them his powers. They represented him. He'd called them apostles. They were his. They were full of the word of God. They'd been raised in it since they were children, memorized huge portions of scripture. They knew more about Bible doctrine than you do. Probably better preachers than you are. But they still, look, they loved Jesus, but they didn't love each other. Not the way the Bible talks about and Pentecost changed it all. That, that's the thing to get in, in your mind. Whatever they were given on the day of Pentecost, they never squabbled again. They were given the power to love. They were given totally different hearts. Prior to Pentecost, they loved Jesus, but after Pentecost, they loved each other. And if you haven't got that, you're not yet half Pentecostal. Take it seriously. In the last 100 years, you were Pentecostal if you spoke in tongues. Not in the next 100 years. In the next 100 years, you're only Pentecostal if you love each other deeply from the heart. So, prior to the day of Pentecost, they were willing to die for Jesus. But after, after, after Pentecost, they were willing to die for each other and did. Now, come on. This lifts the whole game to another level. What I'm saying is, there's grace available to you beyond anything you've received. And it's all in Christ. And it's time to get hungry all over again for a, for a bigger baptism of the Spirit. Now, what this does is, amongst other things, it transforms our relationships with one another and our attitudes to each other. But it always starts with our heart toward our leader. 
That's where the spirit of sonship comes in. That's one of the very important key manifestations of the whole deal. You know, I could stand here and teach you, you know, how to follow a spiritual leader. But I could also teach you how to be a son to a father, and we'd be talking the same thing. This is Bible language for the same thing. But why father-son language? There's a simple answer. You know, why is there so much father-son language in the Bible? Why do we say the church is actually a family? Come on, because that gets said a lot in the Bible. It's the family of God. I can show you several places just in Ephesians alone where it says that. Uh, Why is there so much example in the Bible of father-son relationships with the most key people in the Bible? It's not, the Bible doesn't just talk about you being a follower and a disciple. It says all of that too. But the ultimate purpose of being a disciple, by the way, or a follower, you take the word that gets, you, you got a modern Bible, it'll say follower. You got perhaps a slightly more dated English version, might say disciple. It's the same word, by the way. It's, it's not, not two different things. It's the same thing. They're just trying to translate something out of the Greek. But what does it mean? If you take the original concept of what that word meant 2,000 years ago, it actually meant to become an imitator of the person you join yourself to, an imitator. And that's why you'll read some translations that, where Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, but you'll read other translations where it says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? It's the same thing. So following, discipleship, imitation, but these are ways of, defi- of describing what sonship should all, always be about. But the, the advantage of the sonship terminology is that it indicates the kind of heart you should have. Because, you know, a son honors a father. And a son serves a father. And a son loves a father. And this is the kind of heart that we are meant to have toward our leaders. Now, I ask you the question, why is that so important? And I haven't answered the question yet. I've simply, you know, illustrated that it is important. Here's the reason. You are called to be totally like Christ and God is a father-son God. Just, Just let that sit for a minute. You are called to be exactly like Christ. In fact, I was only reading this morning in 1 John where he says... It it has not yet been revealed to us what we will be. And that's true, actually. Uh, Do you know that the Bible nowhere has a description of heaven? I'd have to explain to you, there are certain passages there that you think are describing heaven, but it's actually not. What the scripture says is, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, Neither has it entered into the heart of man to even imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. And then the Apostle John says, it has not yet been revealed to us what we shall be. But, he says, we do know that when he appears, we will discover that we have been made to be like him. That's the closest you can get. People who have these experiences, you know, they say they went to heaven. They saw children playing very happily and, you know, beautiful valleys and music and butterflies. No, Holy Spirit is giving them an experience that is meant to indicate to them some truths 
but can't actually show them what heaven's like. Reason being is it's so much beyond our earthly experience, it can't be shown to you. The human brain, the human experience simply cannot comprehend even if you were shown. So you've got to be shown something in human terms about how wonderful it is. It's our limitation. Now, where were we? Why we get onto this? Oh, yeah, yeah. You, here's what Scripture says. You are predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. So you better start using sonship language. You're becoming a son. Now, some people might limit this and say, oh, that's, but that's a son, uh, being a son to God, our Father in heaven. Now, it's true, and it must begin there, but it can't stop there even for a second. Because what you'll find in, with all the commands in Holy Scripture is there seems to be a great deal more emphasis put upon you and I loving each other than there is than even us loving God. I know you do have scriptures like, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But just remember, this is the partial revelation and surrounded by all kinds of, you know, the clouds of symbolism, types and shadows of the Old Testament. But when you get to the New Testament, what that really means gets opened right up. Because until you get to the New Testament, the church is a mystery which the New Testament then opens and we discover that, oh, this was God's purpose all along and he brought Israel into it and he brought the Gentiles into it and it's a whole new deal. So it's in the New Testament that what it really means to love your neighbour opens up. Jesus says, you know, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbour, but I say to you, so he then redefined who your neighbour is and what it means to love. And the, the bigger meaning was actually veiled there all along. So when you get to the New Testament, this is where you discover the, the huge volume of instruction on where we are meant to love one another. And you discover, oh, this is real Christianity. I remember driving once to a conference somewhere in the middle of New South Wales and thinking about what I'd preached there, and I heard the Holy Spirit say, Christianity is relationships, relationships, relationships. Now, if you think it's anything else, you've, you've missed the main game. You've missed the train. Because it, yes, it begins with a relationship with Christ, but then it, it means working it out in relationship with many other people. That's what Christianity is. So much so that... I remember Hazel saying to me one day, we're on the Gold Coast doing a conference, and she said to me, you know, John, I heard the Lord say... God lives in these father-son relationships. And I thought, oh, that's a really strong statement that it's in father-son relationships that God lives. So I went searching the scriptures and discover actually there's a very strong witness of that in the, in the scriptures, particularly with the apostle John, all through uh, 1 John chapter 2, chapter 3. I'll read you one or two verses. Just so you know, I'm not stretching the truth here. To start with, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. In other words, that's where you're supposed to get your assurance of salvation from. In other words, the proof that you're saved is that you love the other believers around you so much. You fall short of that and you better work out your salvation with some fear and trembling then. Because you, you, know, you haven't got the proof. The other proof being that you've got the Holy Spirit. But if you've got the Holy Spirit, you're going to love the brethren. Scripture says... 
If anyone loves the father, he'll love the child born of him. That's John also. Anyway, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But it gets better. I'm going to skip over a whole bunch of these, but here's a good one. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. In other words, relationships in the church of genuine love one for another, that's where God lives more than anything else, the presence of the Lord. No wonder Psalm 133 says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. You know, it is like, and it gives a couple of big comparisons. The big comparisons are, it's like the anointing oil poured on the head of Aaron. You know, that's symbolic of the whole anointing that rested on Christ, Christ the high priest. And then it's as if all the Jew of Mount Hermon was falling on Mount Zion. Mount Zion didn't get much Jew, but Mount Hermon got buckets of it. So these are the big symbols in Scripture of, an, of anointing oil and Jew. These are, these are symbols in, in the Bible of the Holy Spirit. It's as if all of this was poured out on you and there the Lord commands the blessing. It's the brothers dwelling together in unity. And so the Holy Spirit's here today actually to take your hearts and knit you together all the more. And in a moment I'm going to pray prayers to that end. But he says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete. And then one more. Oh, I like, I like kind of preaching this one. It says, if any man says, I love God, but does not love his brother, the truth is not in him. Actually, this translation is a bit more blunt. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. Um, but you might think, well, I don't hate my brother. Ah, what you're ignorant of is this. That when it comes to love and hate in the Bible, there's not a scale. See, a lot of people think, well, I don't, I don't hate them, you know, uh, because you, in your mind, human mind, you think there's some sliding scale and love's up here and hate's down there, and no, you're more kind of ambivalent, you know? You're a bit busy, you know? In the Bible, there's no such scale. It's either love or hate. So that if you don't actually love someone from the heart, uh, in, in biblical eyes, you actually hate them. What, what's the dividing line between the two? It really has to do with whether your heart has care or, or not, some sense of care for that other person or not. Um, well, here's the application of the scripture. If anyone says he loves God, look, I, I have learned in the course of my uh, more than 50 years in Christianity, uh, 50 years ago I started to preach, but didn't kind of become a full-time preacher for a few more years. But in all those years, I've learned a few things. And one of them is, pretty much any mug can say, I love God. And then you get all these people say, oh, I love the church. But let me tell you, somebody who slips in, they like the singing, oh, I love the church. You know, they slip out again. No, they're deceived. Because there's, there's no such thing without a giving of love as without a giving of the heart. Now, now, this is a hugely critical thing to understand. You probably all heard evangelists say, give your heart to Jesus. So if I come along and say, give your heart to your pastor, you might think, oh, that's a bit of, bit of idolatry there. No, 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 it's not. You, you think a bit more deeply about this. There is no genuine human relationship that is in any way meaningful that doesn't involve the giving of the heart. So 
Young man, young woman, get to know each other, fall in love, want to get married. What have they done? They've given their hearts to someone other than Jesus. No, they've given their hearts to each other. And then she, uh, you know, they get married and little Johnny is born or little Susie. Listen, they've given their hearts to this baby before that child's even born. And that child's given its heart too. No one has to teach this baby, give your heart to your mom and dad. No, they just want dad, you know. First word most kids say is dad, dad, you know. Maybe it's easier to say than mom, mom, I don't know. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's the way it is. And um, the giving of the heart. And what is it that makes blood thicker than water? See, the giving of the heart. And um, what we must learn is that the church, to really be the body of Christ, always must involve us giving our hearts to each other. But you are not properly joined to the body of Christ if you have not given your heart to a leader, someone over you in the Lord. This is absolutely critical. Whereas denominational Christianity, I know full well because I spent years of ministry in the Salvation Army and then years of ministry in the Baptist denomination and had and I wasn't even converted in either one, I was converted in a third and had you know years and years of experience with, with people of all denominations. And the one thing I learned was that in a denominational mindset, you gave your loyalty to a system, but never to the leader. Baptists used to say, don't trust any man, only trust Christ. And that is, biblically speaking, that's rubbish. Paul says, so then, read it for yourself in 1 Corinthians 4. So then, men ought to regard us as stewards of the mysteries of God and as men entrusted by God with the gospel. Now, if God trusts them, don't you think he calls you to? And not only, moreover, with Moses, he said that Israel was baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Leadership is hugely, critically important. And if you want to get the fullness of your inheritance in Christ and live under the full blessing of Christ, and under the real protection and power of that anointing that Christ places over those who are in order. By the way, it only goes over those who are in order relationally. You have to give your heart to a leader. This is what churches are all about. Scripture says he sets the lonely in families. Most churches in the world are only 30, 40, 50 people. 97% of all the churches in the world, less than 60 people. Why is that? They're families. With Christ appointing someone, care about that family. Try to teach them, pray for them, try to lead them. But the members are meant to give him their hearts. And an amazing miracle takes place if they do. There's something begins to happen profoundly in the life of the church. And for one, where the people give their hearts, God then opens the mouth of the man to say things that would never have otherwise been said. Not only does revelation come, but he'll speak and power falls in terms of anointing and provision and grace. But it has to, it goes hand in hand with the giving of honor to leadership, the giving of the heart. And there are many Christians who rob themselves blind because they think they're wonderful Christians because they belong to some church outfit and they think it's the best outfit in town. And they're there every Sunday morning and they give in the offering and they sing the songs and they say, oh, I just love the church, but they've never given their heart to their leader. They're disconnected. 
Because without relational maturity, there is no such thing as spiritual maturity. Uh, I can tell you a heap more. Two little stories that sometimes get rather big on me. I've got to try and keep them small. Uh, when the ground shifted under my feet in 95, and I suddenly realized it's not just about the restoration of apostles, but about the restoration of the apostolic nature of the church, I began to really seek the Lord, what does it mean for the church to be an apostolic people? Because I couldn't get my head around it. And, and, and most people don't. I hear all kinds of talk in the world about, you know, uh, well, the conferences are promoted as being apostolic and prophetic, and they're nothing of the sort. Because they're simply taking a Christianity as they've known it and putting the new vocabulary on it. We're talking about something of, a, of another order much more of Christ. But I was seeking to understand what does it mean to be an apostolic people? Because, you know, your beginning point is you think it's power. You know, power to raise the dead and work miracles and, you know, all that. But that's not the beginning point. It, it'll, it gets there, but it's not the beginning point. And if you don't get the beginning point right, it doesn't matter how many miracles you work, it's not apostolic. Because the Bible says even false prophets work lying signs and wonders. Don't be fooled by signs and wonders. There's something else that has to be in the heart or you're not an apostolic people. And I sought the Lord about this for months and months. And, and finally, he, he made it very clear to me and let it be known. But because it, because it involved huge thinking shifts and emotional shifts, he took time to get me clear on this. And then I proved it over a lot of years. To define what it means to be apostolic, truly, genuinely apostolic, you have to define it relationally. How, how do you relate to Jesus and how do you relate to each other? Without relationships of the heart, you're not an apostolic people. You're Christians, you've got Christian doctrine, you've got the Bible, you've got the Holy Spirit, you've got a lot of blessings, you've got the truth, you can preach, you can heal the sick, but the real thing that determines whether you've got this thing called apostolic grace that makes all the difference, makes a total difference to quality of life, has to do with relationships of the heart. The very thing, come on, don't tell me I'm wrong on this, it's the very thing that Jesus all the way along every single day tried to get into his disciples. Love one another from the heart. If anyone would be first amongst you, let him be last of all, let him be servant of all. It always had to do with how they thought about each other, how they served each other, or they never ever would be real apostles. Why? Because it all comes out of how he loves his father and how he serves his father. If you don't get that, you don't get the real Christ. So, I was being sent by the Lord into Asia in the early 90s, and in, in the early years of learning about apostles and teaching it, and the Lord was giving me sons in Asia, you know, Philippines, Cambodia, India, and other places, and their sons to me to this day, at the time, though, they were young men who had this call on them. And thank God, he, he, you know, I was just going as I felt led, but thank the Lord, you know, he connected me with the right guys because some of those just become great along the way. But um, so I ended up being a father to these young guys who were called to be apostles, but didn't realize I needed a father myself. You know, I'm an Australian bloke. I'm not really into the, wasn't into the touchy-feely stuff, you know. 
Look, I had a sizable church. I had pastors on the staff, had elders, had deacons, had wife, had children, had good relationships with the denomination. I thought I had all the relationships you needed until in 1994, the Lord got a hold of me and insisted that I join myself to another man. He was an American man. His name was Chuck Clayton from Indiana. And look, he was 10 years older than me, of a different culture. He was very Southern. He seemed really gruff. He carried a huge grace, huge you know, grace in ministry, but I found it hard to relate to him. I'd, I'd sit with him. I wouldn't know what to talk about. But the Lord said, you know, you, you pursue this man. And so I started visiting him his, his house, have him come visit me. And for eight years, you know, he'd, we'd pay visits and I'd learn from him and he'd come visit our church. He'd preach. It was good. He'd pray. It was good. Church was always healthier afterwards. It was good. But I thought that's all there was to it. But, I, but in theory, I now had an apostle who was my apostolic covering, and in theory, I now had a spiritual father. We had the good theory of it. So you could draw an organizational chart for the church, you know, here I am, senior pastor, and they put another box up here, you know, spiritual father. And, and I thought, it's, it's, it's complete. And eight years in, that's all it was. It was kind of like, it was nice, it was convenient, you could feel satisfied, clear conscience, but it was very arm's length emotionally or relationally. One day in a prayer meeting at home, one of the guys said, I, I was praying, we'd been praying all night, it was 5.30 in the morning, and the, when I finished praying, he said to me, John, while you were praying, the photo of Chuck on the wall just stood out to me. He said, I believe the Lord's saying, this man means so much more to us, he, and he has so much more to give us. And I'm sitting there, and I couldn't believe it. I thought, no, we've already heard all he's had to say, and I didn't think there was any more in him. You know, I, I didn't think there was any greater blessing than what we already had. I just couldn't for the life of me conceive how that could be true. But within a few months, the Lord totally changed our hearts. And that man came to visit, and so much grace was released into our church. It was just astounding. I can remember sitting there. I remember sitting in my church while he was preaching. We had a conference, and all our people were there. When all of a sudden, my heart was completely different. It was a gift of grace. I mean, I'm trying to tell you, this is grace, right? You get imparted grace. All of a sudden, my heart is just different, like when you're born again. And all of a sudden, I felt so much love for him like I never had before. And I'm sitting there thinking, he belongs to me, and I belong to him. And, and he and Karen belong to Hayes and I, and Hayes and I belong to him and Karen. And, and he belongs to all our people, and all our people belong to him. And... and you know, where all this came from. Just totally different heart. You know what had happened? I'd become a son. The Lord changed my heart. Up until then, I found it hard to be close to him emotionally. But from that time, I just loved him deeply. Found it so easy to be near to him. We were, I only saw him once a year, but there was such a sense of walking with him. And I, got, I became so rich in the spirit. And the Lord, do you know that from that time, I mean, this is not the church. This was the apostolic ministry I'd begun. The income was small. But from that time, the tithe of the income was more than the whole income had been previously. From the time my heart became a son. For three years in, the Lord tested it. This is what I'll get to, and then I better quit. Save the other story for tonight. Two stories for tonight. Three years in, the Lord tests this relationship. Well, we're testing my heart. I'm in his house. Hazel's there. We have to go out and preach. I'm going out to preach one Wednesday night. So get all dressed up, come down to the kitchen, get the cup of tea, you know, mandatory, a dozen times a day. 
And um, Hazel's there in the kitchen and Karen's standing there. We're all dressed up, ready to go out. Chuck walks in and he, he says something. I don't remember what he said, but it sounded far too personal, far too intrusive. It, it felt like he crossed a boundary that you should never cross relationally. It seemed demanding and crude. And, and your immediate reaction was, he's got no right to demand that. But, you know, so often we don't really understand what someone said or what they meant anyway. The human heart is always more predisposed to taking offence, you know, than to assuming the best. I didn't say anything. But it just it didn't feel right, didn't sound right. And anyway, hasn't I went, we're just pleasant, you know, went on our way to the meeting. But down the road, uh, somewhere I stopped the car and I said to Hazel, I said, look, I don't know what Chuck meant back there, but um, they've been a huge blessing to us. Done so much for us. They've loved us, opened doors for us. I said, I, refu I refuse to believe the worst. I refuse to take offence. And I prayed. I spent about 10 minutes just thanking the Lord. All the things Chuck meant to us, all he'd done for us. Thank the Lord for giving them to us. And then I said to the Lord, I refuse to take offence. So we get home late that night, walk back into the house, and an astounding change has taken place. No words been said, but it was like stepping into another experience of, of heavenly grace than I'd, ever, than I'd ever known before. It's like the Lord lifted them up and lifted us up into another place of deep trust and uh, genuine love, even though no word's been said. It was, it was only afterwards I realized I'd passed a test, like a test of the heart. So I'm warning you. But then for the next five years, uh, 18 years altogether, I walked with Chuck before he died. And so that last... Um, seven or eight years, there was such a sense of rapport. I see him once a year, sometimes once in two years. There was such a sense of power flowing to me and of anointing and of grace and such a sense of security and protection and it came out of nothing other than the fact that our hearts were knit in a genuine love that only Christ can give. It's a grace. And it was totally the kind of thing that Elijah and Elisha had and Paul and Timothy had, but I didn't realize it till after he was dead. And when he died and I was on the plane to America to attend the funeral and preach, uh, I suddenly realized that John 17 had been fulfilled in us where Jesus prayed, Father, make them one. As you and I are one. So... I'm here to tell you about a grace. It's a grace for relationships. And the giving of the heart's a really important part of your church service. Without the giving of your heart to your leaders, your Christianity is not quite complete and can't come to maturity. Uh, you have written a whole book on the subject, would you believe? 100,000 word textbook. It'll take you a while to read that. Um, they're on special there today. And then my other book there. The Lord wrote that book too. I put off writing this book for years and years because I thought the subject was so astounding, so beautiful. I felt I could preach it with some passion. I did not think I could write a book that would do justice to the subject. But in the end, I thought I'll never be able to write the book I can't write. 
I'll only be able to write the book I do write. So I sat down to write the book and a miracle occurred 16 days. And a 100,000 word textbook and that's the most popular of my books. Somehow the Lord wrote that book. And somehow the Lord wrote this book too, more than I think the other books. But anyway, I'm going to pray because time is up. And um, I'm going to ask the Lord if he would grant you, grant this church, the riches of grace. The graces I speak about are real. But please understand, when we say grace, we also mean anointing. Or we also mean the giving of the Spirit. I'm going to ask the Lord to give you his Spirit, like another, another portion of his Spirit. It's an anointing to come upon you. It's a grace into the heart. And there's a fourth thing it is, it's power. Whenever you receive grace, you always receive power. So I want you just where you're seated, just allow your heart to step into faith. Start believing God. Because I'm going to release anointings. And uh, we're going to believe for the Lord to add to you as a church and a people, add to your leaders. And that this grace will remain. And he'll build on it. And then uh, finally in the prayer, I'm going to release over you the peace of the Lord Jesus. The, the peace of Christ is very powerful. It's a very powerful anointing. It's one of the two most powerful anointings in all of Christianity. You might have thought it was a nice word or a greeting. It's not. It is a powerful anointing. Last of all, I will place on your minds and hearts and homes the spirit of peace and uh, I want you in faith to receive these things so Father I do thank you that you hear my prayers and you are here and you stand ready to bless and to breathe upon the heart and the mind of every one of these believers and I thank you if you have grace for this whole church as a people you have grace for its leaders you have grace for the senior pastor and his dear wife and Julian. You have grace for them today. You have favor from God and it's here, present. And the heavens are open and it breaks upon them even now. I thank you for the sevenfold spirit. I thank you for the spirit of the Lord and the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, and the spirit of counsel and of power and the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. I bring this grace today and I place it upon this house. And in the name of the Lord Jesus, I say to every one of you, grace to you. And I place upon you these anointings, the sevenfold spirit of the Lord Jesus. I place it on you and in Jesus' name, release it to you. And I thank you, Lord, that in that spirit of understanding is this great grace the anointing by which community is built. And I ask today that you would place into every heart here, even into the little ones, even into those who are not in the meeting, place into every heart an abiding and abundant portion of the spirit of understanding, the very thing that was in the Christ. I receive it from your hand today. I bring it down from the throne of God. And I place this grace, the spirit of understanding, upon every heart here. I place it upon your heart. I 
place it upon your mind. I place it into the very fabric of this church, the spirit of understanding. And in Jesus' name, I release it to you. The anointing by which community is built, the anointing by which we have new hearts, love toward one another. I ask you, Lord, you to build on this grace in this house. And I pray especially for Pastor Phil and his dear wife, Julian, leading this work, that you would grant to them such an abundance in this, not only the, the favor of it and the power of it, but deep insight into it. So enlarge their hearts, so enrich them, oh God. And so I pray today, lay my hand on this dear brother and I release to him. Father, I ask that you'd take of the favor that you've given me in these things and of the spirit of revelation you've given me and give it to him. And Phil, I release it to you in Jesus' name. The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ of which you've had so much, but the Lord give you more and open the heavens of his favor over you and over Julian. I bless you in Jesus' name. And the Lord give you his peace. And I ask you, Lord, that this powerful anointing, the spirit of understanding would flood all through this whole house. Rest on every heart, rest on every marriage, oh God, in every home. And go out to their workplaces and their neighborhoods. In Jesus' name, I send that anointing by which community is built into this whole suburb, into all this region, Wyong, Tugra. I release the Spirit of Christ in this matter in Jesus' name. And I thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers. And so I pray you turn their hearts to one another because your word says that you give this anointing for this very purpose, to turn the hearts of the, of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers turn the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and I thank you for that great grace and let it flood this whole house and so may young men and young women become mighty sons and daughters in the Lord and in the land may there be such a giving of the heart in this place make them one and make them holy so Lord I thank you for them and I bless them release your favour over everyone of them. Now, brothers and dear sisters, receive his peace. Father, I thank you for the peace that rests on the Lord Jesus, who said to us, my peace I give to you. Thank you, Lord, for this tangible, powerful, wonderful grace. And I bring the peace of the Lord Jesus down upon this house today. And upon this church, C3 of Tugger, I place the peace of Christ. I place his peace on your minds. I place it into your hearts. I place his peace upon your homes and your marriages. I place his peace upon your neighborhoods. And I place that I send this peace into all the body of Christ of this region. And I say peace to this house. In Jesus' name, I release it. Peace to you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. There need be no more striving in anyone's heart obtain answers to prayer or to see good things happen. I thank you, Lord, that they can rest and they can believe you're a miracle-working God. Work miracles for this people. Oh, God, I pray and I thank you that you hear my prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.